Hello and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we're bringing you an edited discussion on liberty and morality in the AI era, which we recorded at our recent FT Weekend Festival in London. Alice Fishburne, the FT's magazine editor, chaired the discussion with Jamie Suskind, author of Future Politics, Verity Harding of Google DeepMind, and Tabitha Goldstorb, co-founder of Cognition X. Jamie Suskind opens the discussion. There's a story told of a 19th century encounter between the Prime Minister, William Gladstone, and the great scientist, Michael Faraday, where Faraday was showing Gladstone the invention of electricity, which he hadn't seen before. And Gladstone was kind of looking at it in quite a perplexed way. And he said to Faraday, well, what does it do? What's it useful for? And Faraday gave some answer, some scientific application for it. And Gladstone, who was many things but wasn't known for being a great laugh, kept on asking the same question. What's it for? What does it do? And Faraday eventually reached the end of his patience and replied, well, sir, eventually you'll be able to tax it. <laughs> now, uh, the, the thesis of my book and what I believe is that the world is increasingly being remade by Faraday's and by Gladstone's. Faraday's great scientists, engineers, and technologists who are producing unbelievable systems and changes, but who aren't always that clear about the social and political and moral implications of their work. And on the other side, Gladstones, who know a lot about politics and a lot about morality, but maybe not that much about tech. And that leaves the rest of us, who are neither Gladstones nor Faraday's, but in my view, it's our duty to learn as much as we can about both in order to hold these figures to account. The thesis that I would put forward today is simple. Those who control the most powerful technologies in the future will increasingly control the rest of us. And I think that is the big political question with which we're all going to have to wrestle. Whether it's in the realm of power, with rules that are coded into the technologies that we increasingly rely on. Imagine a self-driving car that won't drive over the speed limit. It won't park illegally even for a moment. It won't trespass on what's thought to be private property. It might pull over immediately for a police car. And you think of that's just one of millions of many technologies that will gradually emerge around us, where the rules are set by others and not by us, and we're rule takers. In the realm of democracy, where the flow of information and the flow of debate is increasingly channeled through platforms owned and controlled by private firms. In the realm of liberty, where moral decisions will be made for us by tech firms and their lawyers. When you first use a virtual reality system, if you want to do something that society considers disgusting or obscene, should you be allowed to do it, even if no one is harmed in the process? Is that a decision that we should all be taking, or should it be left to tech firms? And in the realm of social justice, with algorithms increasingly distributing things of value, whether it's insurance, a mortgage, jobs, 72% of CVs are never seen by human eyes anymore. And so my view is we need to learn about these technologies. We need to understand that the digital is political, and we need to be able to hold them to account. Thanks very much. Tabitha, you have just joined the government as an advisor. What do you think? Where do you think government's role is? I think the first thing that I felt when I was asked to do this was that the title said, how will technology change society? And I feel like for the last 20, 30 years, it has been that way around. And now it's our turn. It's actually how will society change technology? 
there's a big job to be done. Society is going to change technology, and I think that comes down in part to play for government. And for a long time, the government hasn't found a good way to get involved in how technology is changing society. I feel that artificial intelligence, which has been around for a very long time, since the 60s or 70s, that is now coming to fruition, is a moment for us to take pause and think about how do we want this to be used for good and for all of society. And so I'm working with the government to bring together industry, academics, and the people from government with us on this conversation so we can think about whether we are regulating or whether we are ensuring that people just think that this is something they can get involved in. But there's a whole spectrum of levers that we can pull and push, and that's the conversation we're having today. And Verity, you obviously, you come from Google DeepMind, so you're representing more the tech company side of things. I mean, what do you think tech companies should be doing in terms of working with politicians and, in fact, with all of us as citizens and as consumers? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important, actually, and I completely agree with what Tabitha said about people really getting involved now in a way that's hugely positive. The unit that I co-lead at DeepMind is called uh, Ethics and Society Unit. We were very deliberate about that and society part of it because increasingly I think technology is something that all of us and the whole of society needs to be really involved in just making active decisions about how we want it used. So I'm really optimistic about that. I've seen a lot of exciting new initiatives, for example, the Partnership on AI, which is a group that DeepMind, other tech companies are members of, but so are Amnesty International, the American Civil Liberties Union, really notable, incredible academics that work on issues of privacy and security, all coming together to tackle a series of broad challenges that they see coming up for the AI industry and trying to get ahead of those and start to in a multi-stakeholder way, work out what society wants, how the tech companies can be held accountable, and how governments can be involved in that collaborative way. And if I could just ask, what are the biggest of those challenges that you mentioned? What are the things you think need our attention the most? Well, at DeepMind Ethics and Society, we sort of organize around six key ethical challenges. I won't go into loads of detail on that. You can look at them on our website. But they include the economy, security, privacy. But I would say, for me, I would highlight the issue of bias and fairness in machine learning. I also co-chair a working group on that within the partnership and AI on fairness, transparency, and accountability. And I think that's one of the most pressing challenges at the moment is how do we ensure that these systems represent society fairly, that they are just, that the data sets being used to train them do not contain inherent biases that cause outcomes that might be unfair and how we can analyze that and how we can make sure that that's something that isn't embedded, that we don't basically take existing structural disadvantages and inequalities in our society and embed those into tools and systems that we'll all be using. That's what we really need to avoid. Yeah, because obviously we've read about, you know, the facial recognition software that doesn't recognize black people, the way that bias against women is encoded into various things. And how do we make sure that our own biases, which have always been there ever since the beginning of history, don't become part of this? How can we once these technologies have been developed to a point, keep an eye on them, keep regulating them, keep making sure that these things don't repeat? I think there's probably three different ways. So at one end of the spectrum, there are potential technology solutions. So um, whether we are building uh, AI that is able to be interrogated or explainable, there are some things that need to be done from that perspective. The second thing is about making sure that we have the right people building this technology. So if we have all white young men, which we've predominantly seen building the technology in the past, building this technology, it's quite obvious that a lot of their bias will seep into the machines. So there's some work to be done in ensuring we have diversity at the core of the building these machines. And then lastly, it's about the data sets we collect. 
So my favorite story slash worst story, but a useful story to tell, is I found some information around women dying in car crashes in the early 70s. And they were dying in these car crashes way more than men because the cars were tested on male test crash dummies. And that obvious, but it happened for so many years that it takes you by surprise. But then you think about today, and it took until 2016 for there to be emojis on our phone that had women depicted anything other than brides and hairdressers, or women getting their hair cut. I wasn't sure. Or the red dress. And so we haven't come very far, and the scary thing is that that can only, unless we pay close attention, get worse. And so I think we have to look at all three of those things. So firstly, the technology and how it's being built. Secondly, making sure we have diverse teams. And thirdly, what data and information are we feeding these machines? I would endorse all of that. I think we've moved into a sort of third phase when it comes to this stuff. I think there was a phase where people just weren't paying attention to it. Then there was a phase when tech companies began to pay a lot more attention to the quality of the data that they were using to see whether it was properly representative. If you train a facial recognition system using only white faces, it will not recognize people whose faces are not white. But there's a third phase now where I think we need to be much more sophisticated. So I think, for instance, there is this fallacious idea in the tech industry that if you make an algorithm that's neutral, that faithfully reflects the real world, then somehow that is going to be a just algorithm. But the problem is that the world itself contains injustices, which these algorithms then reflect. Let me just give you two examples. If you type the phrase, why do Jews, into Google, it will auto-correct it to some quite unpleasant things. So why do Jews have big noses? Why do Jews love money so much? And the reason that happens, Google will tell you, is because that's what people have searched for. And that algorithm faithfully reflects the second half of the sentences that other people have typed in when they've typed in the first half of the sentence. To take a second example, a company trained a machine to fill in basic logic problems. So it would say, mother is to daughter as father is to, and it would say son or something like that. But what was interesting is that if you asked it, man is to doctor as woman is to, it would reply nurse. And the reason it did that was not because the people who wrote the code were in some sense bigoted or misogynistic. It's because the data set that it used, which was real words spoken by real people, reflected a bias in the way that human beings talk about gender. So the neutrality fallacy is the idea that if we build algorithms that are somehow neutral, that don't actively discriminate against minority groups, then that's enough. But merely reflecting reality only entrenches injustices. So you need to create algorithms that correct for them, in my view, that don't just reflect them. You will need to search for female CEO as much as possible on your phones, because if you just search for CEO, we're just going to keep getting a lot of men out there. <laughs> well, one of the things I was going to ask is I think that most, the average citizen, when they hear the term AI, just feels sheer confusion and perhaps some terror. So if it's more and more important that we as citizens and as consumers of this stuff on a regular basis are being proactive and registering our concerns and registering where we think things need to be remedied, what's the best way for us to do that? What's the best way for us to understand our rights, what we can do to help the work that all of you are doing to ensure that technology is changing society in the way we want? No, I mean, if you look at like, the work that DeepMind is doing, for example, we sort of talk about the science of making machines 
smart. And what we hope that increasingly sophisticated algorithms might be able to do is help us make sense of some of the vast amounts of complex data that there is out there. And in doing so, if we can increase efficiencies or spot patterns in data that exists already, then we might be able to make really positive impacts on some of those big global challenges that we're facing. I think that's what excites me about AI and machine learning is the idea that maybe, you know, if there's a huge amount of medical data that you could spot some pattern in that that might lead to some new scientific discoveries that we might be able to have an impact on something like climate change. I mean, I'll just give one tangible example that my colleagues at DeepMind did to improve the efficiency of the cooling systems in Google's data centers. And, you know, that doesn't maybe sound like the most exciting thing, but in automating those processes, they reduce the amount of energy used for cooling by 40%. And considering data centers contribute something like, I think it's around 3% to global emissions, there's some huge potential positives there. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jamie, what do you think citizens should be doing to ensure their rights? I agree and I disagree. I think asking, is technology going to be a positive thing, is a bit like asking, is the state a positive thing? (laughs) There are good states and there are bad states, and they exert power over us. And in the good ones, we have transparency and we have accountability. And we, the citizens and the users, have an opportunity along a spectrum from a little to a lot to affect the policies and the principles and the values that are put into the governance of our lives. And so I think the same with technology. I think that it's certainly possible and desirable that we live in a world where the awesome power that these technologies are unleashing is used for the benefit of humankind. I think everyone in this tent would be naive to suppose that the best way of ensuring that is to allow a kind of untrammeled system of purely commercial usage where the market determines which technologies are used and how they are used without some kind of at least understanding on the part of the broader population as to some principles that we might want to impose at a more systemic level. There's an ancient principle in politics, and the Romans believed it, that you're unfree if you live in a world where power is exercised over you and you have no say in it, even if that power is exercised benevolently. And I think it will be against the grain of human history for us to just expect and hope that tech titans will exercise power benevolently, that states who are granted or who co-opt the power of technology to watch us and to control us in various ways will do it benevolently. And so technology is there for all of us to harness if we want to and if we can, but it shouldn't just be left to the market because the market isn't always the best determinant of the common good. But are we not part of that market by deciding what we do buy or we don't buy or what we want and what we won't have? Is that not where we have the power? To a certain extent, but the difficulty with some technologies, with a lot of them, is that the network effects mean that individual consumers aren't really able to hold tech companies to account. So if I take a stand against Facebook about the way that it uses my data, that's not going to do much good unless a few million other people do it as well. And it's a classic political problem. It's a problem of collective action. So talking of political power, obviously one of the areas where we've seen issues with the 
power of big tech and algorithms is around elections and what happens with elections. How would you advise your new government AI council to reassure people that they're not being unduly influenced? I think the only way until additional regulation is brought in is educating people who aren't working out for themselves what is fake news, what isn't fake news. And one of the things I remember very well when I was at school was being taught critical thinking and reasoning where most of history was about two different sources and deciding who you believed. And that now isn't in the curriculum. So that isn't something that we're seeing in state schools being taught to interrogate source. And so I think it's less about the state saying, don't worry, you're going to be fine. It's more about the state saying, okay, this is how to be fine. And this is how to exercise your rights without being unduly influenced. It's got to be about education. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think understanding the systems is crucial. And I think what's heartening is, you know, I've worked in the tech industry for a few years now. And I think it used to be that if you weren't on the technical side, you know, that somehow that was seen as embarrassing or lesser in some way. And now I think, uh, my experience anyway, is that certainly the technology industry is changing and actively looking for and welcoming people from other disciplines to get involved in technology as well. So in my team, we have ethicists, for example, and political theorists and economists. And I think that moving together of disciplines instead of siloing, you know, academics over here and technologists over here and government over here, having Tabitha advising government, for example, I think those sort of changes are pretty crucial to making sure that people can make those informed decisions and understand what they're seeing and what they're dealing with and interacting with. The chief executive of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, testified to Congress that recently the Twitter algorithm had made a mistake. It had wrongly deprioritized the comments of 600,000 people in an important political cycle. So they basically disappeared from people's timelines or were downgraded or demoted. Those 600,000 people included some of the congressional candidates running in those elections. There's no perfect way to moderate something like Twitter. That would be my first point. Secondly, it's good that Jack Dorsey came to Congress and told the world that that is what had happened. But my view is we shouldn't have to wait for the chief executive of a public company to come and confess until we know that that is what has happened. And so if you had a little more transparency about how the Twitter algorithm works, if civic-minded people were able to look at it on a day-to-day -day basis, just like people go and sit in committee rooms of the House of Commons or trawl through records of things that they're interested in in holding public bodies to account. We should have a fence at the top of the cliff rather than an ambulance at the bottom. And to me, the fence at the top would be just a little bit more transparency. We shouldn't have to rely on the goodwill of undoubtedly good people like Jack Dorsey to know how our political process is being influenced after the event. Well, what about the ambulance a little even further, not even near the cliff? Like if he hadn't built a system that's so easily allowed for that kind of trolling or that kind of disinformation, maybe we could have an ambulance even further. That would be really cool. I think that's what I you're doing that. more at, at sort of partnership on AI, right? <laughs> the ambulance before you've even built something. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly the hope and the same with the unit that I co-lead at DeepMind is the idea that we have a responsibility if we're building this technology that hopefully does enormous good and is, is powerful, that we are taking that responsibility to look at what the effects might be from the start and that we're rigorous about that before we do anything. And I completely agree with Jamie's point about transparency as well. I think it's incredibly important. We've tried to do our bit there. My unit has a set of advisory research fellows who are independent people. We've had these independent reviewers who have 
analyze some of the work we've been doing in the health sector and they have access to everything and are able to scrutinize it in the public interest and I think one of our founders has said this before and I completely agree with it you know we have to innovate as fast on the governance of this as we are on the technology itself and so transparency, looking at things even further back in the process, all of those things are really important. And I think that's also why having more people involved in the conversation like is happening at the partnership on AI is really important. It would have been maybe surprising a few years ago to think of the ACLU and the big tech companies and privacy lawyers all sat around a table having really open, honest, constructive dialogue about what this means, but it is actually happening now. And I think there's just an increasing recognition from all players that that's necessary. And I think also what I'm quite excited about is seeing that happening with young people as well. I'm part of a group called Teens and AI, and they have hackathons where they'll get together, you know, between 30 and 300 students, and they will set them a task. And then most recently, they'll go away for 10 days, and they'll get experts from industry to come and help them in building a product. And what's so cool is that these groups, there'll be one person who's more computer science, one person who thinks more about the maths and, and the AI, and then they'll have three others who have just come along and they've decided to work out, they want to be in those teams, and they found themselves making actually far better products than any other hackathon I've ever been to, where it's sort of, I hate to say it, but kind of nerds in a corner, just coding, and the way the code looks is important. This hackathon I was judging, they didn't even really show the code. They showed the idea, they showed you where you'd got to, and it was a beautiful experience because the young girls went away, especially feeling like they can now get involved in the conversation in the future. That's really exciting. I think that's what I would also say in terms of your question, Alice, about you know, how can everybody get involved. I think don't feel that because you don't understand the deep technical issues behind these products that your insight and intuitions aren't as important because they are more important and completely valid and so I think it's open and it's time for everybody to be involved. We've been asking listeners to send in their views on overrated and underrated technology, potential threats to the tech industry and what non-tech book they would recommend that has influenced how they think about technology. After the discussion, we put some of these questions to Jamie Suskind and Tabitha Goldstorp, and here's what they said. I think a technology that's both underrated and overrated is chatbots. They're overrated because I think people expect too much of them. These are the little disembodied artificial intelligences that can talk with you on Twitter and reply to you on social media. They're overrated because I think people still expect too much of them, but they're underrated because if they achieve what it's expected they might achieve over the next few years. And just to give an example, they're already passing medical examinations better than many British medical students. Then they could come to play an enormously important role in political discourse, perhaps even more important than the rest of us, drowning us out with witticisms and facts and figures whenever we try to participate in political debate online. The biggest risk from the perspective of technology companies is the risk of regulation, in particular regulation by governments that don't fully understand the technologies that they're trying to regulate, but recognize or think that something needs to be done at all costs. Thinking about non-tech books that have been influential in the tech world, I think a lot of technologists would say that Ayn Rand's work, the great libertarian from the last century, has influenced them. To give an example, 44% of Bitcoin adopters in 2013, so early adopters, described themselves as anarcho-capitalists who wanted to eliminate the state. So that shows that I think there's sometimes a relatively narrow stream of political philosophy that's known within the tech community. In my thinking and in my work, I tried to look at other works from the canon of political theory. For instance, John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Questions like, 
should you be allowed on a VR system to do things that are perceived as immoral or disgraceful, even if they don't cause harm to other people, such as simulating virtual sex with someone who's a real person or imagining what it was like to be a Nazi executioner. Questions like that. Should we be allowed to do that stuff? It's something that would have interested John Stuart Mill, particularly in circumstances where it doesn't harm other people. And where technology increasingly codes values into the life and world around us, I would ask and hope that technologists, philosophical engineers, as Tim Berners-Lee described them, pay a little more attention to the broader canon, not just the libertarian one. I'm really optimistic about the future and one of the most important things to ensure that that optimistic future does come to fruition is getting more women involved. So today there's about 9% of women in artificial intelligence, there's a larger number in technology and so we must get young girls thinking that this is for them technically but also we must get them thinking that this is for them in the roles that are around AI. So design, marketing, the product side of things, you don't need to just be the engineer. I personally can't code, I struggle even to tell the time but I'm able to have these conversations and so are other young women and old women. There are lots of different ways that women can get involved today. There are hackathons that you can go along to to get a feel for it. They don't need you to be technical. You can just go along and come up with some product ideas. My big piece of advice if you're looking for some inspiration is to read or watch. Watching is easier, isn't it? Watch Hidden Figures. It's a wonderful movie. Well, I hope that's inspired you to contribute your own answers to these questions. If you'd like to take part in the debate, please email us at tectonic at ft.com. Or why not send us an audio recording that we can include in a future episode? We'll be back with another episode of Tectonic next week. In the meantime, if you're not already a subscriber and would like to discover more FT content, take a look at our subscriber offers at ft.com forward slash offer. This episode of Tectonic was produced by Fiona Simon.